Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. What does it mean to be Black and alive right now? That's the question co-editors Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham explore in their new book, Black Futures, a multimedia anthology which they call an archive of collective memory and exuberant testimony. The 500-plus page non-linear book consists of work from artists, essayists, activists, and more, navigating a range of themes including justice, ownership, legacy, and joy. Kimberly Drew, a writer and curator, and Jenna Wortham, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, join us to talk about their book and the myriad expressions of black life that it highlights. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. song Think About You by Ursula Rucker, which can be heard on the mix Today is Yesterday's Tomorrow by King Brit. The mix and its track list is one of many works presented in Black Futures, a new book co-edited by Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. Drew is a writer, curator, and activist. Wortham is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and co-host of the New York Times podcast Still Processing. And the book is an adventure. Drew and Wortham describe it as an archive, a luminous map, and an infinite geography of possible futures, featuring art, photography, essays, screenshots of social media posts, interviews, recipes, and more. Joining me now to dive into it all is Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. Welcome to Forum. Thank you for having us. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. So I'm wondering, Kimberly and Jenna, if you can read a bit from your introduction just to kick things off. Of course. This is Jenna, and I'm happy to jump in. Great. The Black Futures Project started a few years ago as a direct message exchange on Twitter and has evolved into a shared desire to archive a moment. In developing Black Futures, we sought to answer the question, what does it mean to be Black and alive right now? Black Futures is not designed to be a comprehensive document. Blackness is infinite. A single book cannot attempt to contain the multitudes and multiverse. This is just one manifestation of a project that spans millennia. We are in a continuum of those who came before and those who will come after and make a dent in the archival project that is required of us as humans on this planet. We strove to nod to those we admire who are making history and those taking history and doing something anew with it. We aimed for a perspective that was global, a temporal, not dominated by America and the West, not constructed by binaries and as dynamic as possible for a print book. Okay. And so you alluded a little bit to kind of how this book began. Um, can you dive into the story a little bit more, Kimberly Drew? Yes, with joy. <laughs> Our 
relationship with this book and with this project was really born as all great contemporary stories are on an app. We connected over Twitter DM back in 2015 with the shared interest in chronicling and hopefully archiving some of the incredible moments that we were noticing that were happening both online and off. I think we both sought deep inspiration from the one and only Beyonce and her visuals that were an accompaniment to the On The Run tour wherein she included videos from folks like Evelyn from the internets. And we saw this incredible fusion that was happening in the ways that social media was being centered and these connective tissues were being centered and wanted to create a multimedia project that could start to hint at what those things were in the interest of making sure that they weren't forgotten. And I love that also in your introduction, you really invite the reader to just explore. And I think, Kimberly, you've referred to it as, you know, choose your own adventure, right? And and I will say that when I first got the book, I felt overwhelmed at first, but in like a really exciting way. You know, the freedom that you give is feels really beautiful and kind of nurturing. And a part of my brain was just like, whoa, okay, so now where do I go with this? And and it was nice just to be able to kind of figure out and kind of flip through and just see what caught my eye and, and discovered that. What I guess, yeah, what was the, the thought process in, in kind of opening that, that up to readers? This is Jenna. Yeah. Um, you know, the book really began, you know, Kimberly laid it out, you know, but it really also began in a meeting of our minds and a meeting of our intellectual curiosities and the things that excited us both as creators and artists ourselves and going back and forth and just kind of highlighting works that were meaningful or essays that spoke to us, um, tweets that we thought were incredibly powerful and that we wanted to archive. And I think, you know, we started out just amassing just, you know, dozens of pieces of content that we thought were compelling and might belong in the book. And it was really our design team, Marcos Key, that came together and formed the visual language that, you know, you see throughout the book in terms of um, the color coding that indicates what type of piece of work you're looking at. There are um, all kinds of organizational systems that help readers navigate, including uh, a series of tabs called related entries. So if you're on one piece of, of a material or one essay, and then you go to the related entries, there's a couple of options for pieces you can jump to right away so that you don't have to read the book front to back. And I think that construction was really important to both of us because you know, we wanted to create a new experience and it's not an art book and it's not meant to read cover to cover. It's really meant to, you know, for something that you can dive into and swim around in. And Jenna, you've described the book as an invitation. What do you want the book to invite people to feel or do, both Black readers and non-Black readers? Mm. You know, we really want the book to be an invitation to bask in the glory of Black culture, which is true whether you're Black or not, you know, to feel invited to take part and and stand alongside Black people and think about what it means to fight for Black justice and Black lives and to think about what it means to, you know, fight for the environment. There's an incredible piece in there by Ayanna Johnson called What I Know About the Ocean. And it's about, you know, climate change and ocean justice and how important our coastal cities are for Black communities. And that's something that all readers can read and be engaged by and activated by. And throughout the book, there are a lot of invitations as well to start thinking about what it means to create and start your own archive. You know, one of the things that's incredibly important to Kimberly and I is just acknowledgement that this is a finite product. This is a book, you know, and, and it's already such a big book. It's almost 600 pages. We try to cram in as much stuff as possible. And even with that, with that, you know, much space, we still, there's just so much that didn't make it in. So we really hope readers will take the invitation to pick up where we you know, set the baton down and and take it as far as they want. You mentioned Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson's piece, and we loved having her on the show recently for her her latest book. Uh, But also wondering, yeah, what are some of the pieces that other pieces that are on each of your minds today or this week? I'm not asking you to pick favorites. I know that's always a hard question to answer, but what's a piece that resonates most for you at the moment that you can talk a little bit about um, and why you wanted to include it in the book? Kimberly Drew, let's start with you. Yes, we love all of our contributors and all the pieces in the book equally. Let that be on the record. Um, I will say 
I am thinking perhaps the most today in this exact moment, in this exact space, so much about Eve Ewing's poem that is uh, paired alongside Zora Merce's photography in the book. I think about the pairings that we were able to accomplish through the book and the trust that each of our contributors gave to us in making those decisions and having those conversations about artists that they may know and have known for decades or artists that they're new to and seeing that symbiosis that happened through the pairing of, of words and images because I think at that intersection is you know, the dawn of so many potentials for connections and connected tissues and maybe viewing or reimagining the contributions that they've made in a new way. And Jenna, is there another piece that's been resonating for you today or this week? Definitely. Um, my heart is very much with a piece called Aesthetic Resilience by an artist, Sable Elise Smith. And it's a poem essay, a, a collection of incredible um, vignettes about the experience of feeling liberated on the dance floor and how embodied the artist felt when moving in tandem with community and, and, and accompanying that is a series of images from around the world of Black people gathering and celebrating each other and just feeling just deeply alive. And, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We're heading into the second and third tiers of that. And I think this book has felt a little bit like that gathering, even though, you know, we're still separate, obviously, and we're doing everything remotely and virtually, it still feels very much like the spirit embodied and captured in that piece of what it feels like to come together and be joyful and celebrate and commune, even though we physically can't do that right now. And kind of in that vein, the book feels unapologetic to me, um, amongst many other things, but unapologetic stands out. Was that feeling or intention when you felt in your process of putting it together at all? Maybe Kimberly. Ooh, that's a great, yeah, mm -hmm. that's a great launching point. I think unapologetic is definitely a virtue that's imbued in every step of this text. But I also think it really is vulnerability. It started mm. with Jenna's vulnerability and reaching out to me and saying, this is a project that I want to see realized. It started with the vulnerability of saying, okay, let's start this first shared document and see where it goes. Um, it was the vulnerability of going to one world with our book proposal. It was the vulnerability of our outreach strategy to each of our contributors. It was a vulnerability that was founded in the conversations that we commit, um, that we commissioned for the text. This book is really so much about being unapologetic, but also being soft and tender. Um, virtues that I think are so important in a moment like this one, where we find ourselves really seeking softness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Jenna, did you have any thoughts you wanted to add to that? No, that was perfect. Okay. Kimberly is just, uh, imagine spending every single day with this brilliance. I'm so lucky. Well, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the book Black Futures with co-editors Kimberly Drew, who's author also of This Is What I Know About Art. She's also a curator and activist. And Jenna Wortham, staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and co-host of the Still Processing podcast. And in just a moment, we'll go into the break with another track that's featured on the mix by King Brit for Black Futures. It's an instrumental of Kay Trinata's Nothing Like You. And following that, we'll have more with Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham and Black Futures. I'm Ariana Prail. You're listening to Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking about what it means to be Black and alive right now and about the book Black Futures with co-editors Kimberly Drew. She's a curator and activist who's also author of This Is What I Know About Art, and Jenna Wortham, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and co-host of the Still Processing podcast. And you, our listeners, what questions do you have for Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham? Also, what does it mean to you to be Black and alive right now? What are your thoughts on how to center Black art and Black thought in the present and future? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So as I pose that question, the question that you pose in your book um, to the audience, I'm curious to hear your response of what does it mean to be Black and alive right now? I know you started this book and were asking that question before, you know, this year of 2020 became, you know, 2020. Um, but now having completed this book and also just based on your own lived experiences thus far, how would each of you answer that question? Jenna, let's start with you. 
Oh my goodness. What a question. You know, it's wild because while we're working, you know, we're we're doing our book tour and, and we're coming together for all these interviews. We just keep thinking about what a year it's been and almost we could make an entire book about this year and one book wouldn't even be right. enough. We need like a 10 part mini series to deal with 2020. Um, but one thing that's incredible is, you know, even though we did put this book to bed more or less before this year really began, there's still so much in it that resonates. And Kimberly and I were working on the edits for this book in the spring and early summer and, You know, so much was happening during that time. We were in the midst of another round of uprisings, another round of of pushing towards Black liberation and Black resistance. And, you know, it was tough because we were like, you know, is the book going to feel dated because we don't have, it's not as up to minute, you know, as people might expect. But I think we found a lot of comfort in recognizing that there's so much in the book that already speaks to this moment. That's already referencing it because we've been in this moment. And, and I think that's, that's something we tend to think that what's happening right now is new, but it's, it's actually centuries old. And so um, there's a lot of comfort in the way the book grapples with that for me. Kimberly. I love this question. I love that we can keep asking it over and over again because every moment is a new and every moment is a reflection of of where we've come from. I think for me in this exact moment, I think that it means to be a witness. Uh, I think it means to be acutely aware of where we've come from and where we might be going. But I think it's this active Uh, action of of being aware and of of remembering and of challenging ourselves to be remembered either by ourselves or by our community. Um, I think it's this act of resistance against this kind of historical state sanctioned interest in our erasure. It's it's really us claiming and putting, you know, an effort behind understanding the incredible value of what it means to be alive um, for ourselves and for our communities. Well, this listener writes, this listener in Oakland writes, I'm so grateful to be black because we are the architects of our own survival. We continue to design our existence with joy, beauty, artistry, community, and love to build a future where our human value is not contingent on our acceptance of white supremacy. Wow. Do you, do either of you have a reaction to that comment? Just that it's incredible. Whoever wrote that is a poet. I mean, thank you so much for submitting that and for you know, I think perfectly articulating what we're trying to encapsulate in this book as well. And I, and I hope that there's, you know, that they find that within those pages as well. And so I'm also curious uh, how each of you approached your role as editor. I know we talked about a little bit of the process earlier, but just really your relationship to the material and the working relationship between each other. Uh, Jen, I'll start with you. Well, working with Kimberly is the greatest joy of my life, and I owe so much of who I am today to our partnership and the things we've learned in working in tandem and really what it means to try to birth something incredibly ambitious and creative into the world. And I really do think that being in a business partnership with someone you love dearly, you know, it's not the easiest thing, but it's such an important thing if you can get all the components right. And um you know, one thing I hold really dear about our friendship and our partnership and collaboration is that, you know, we're very, we're very focused on our wellness first. We're very focused on our mental health and spiritual and psychological wellness. And so I think even, you know, under the gun, under tremendous deadline pressure this summer, sometimes we still just had to take a day and say, you know, we don't feel great and there's nothing more important than our mental wellness. And so we can just set it down and just take a moment. And that's something I'll eternally be grateful for is just that awareness that there's no product more important than our bond or our physical well-being. And Kimberly, how did you approach your role as editor? I echo everything that Jenna has just said. I think wellness is at the center of this project and I hope that wellness enters into the reading of this project. I don't think it's a cover to cover book by any means. I don't want anyone doing the Herculean task of, of trying to accomplish, you know, a a goal that we don't need you to. Um, But I think as editors, it was really such a privilege to be able to encounter all of these works and so many more that did not make it onto this page for a approximately five years, we were able to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts in ways 
that were so different than the ways that I think we as as even writers and critics ourselves have taken on um, culture. And so I think taking on culture with this really beautiful and ambitious goal in mind was such a privilege and one that, and a gesture that I hope never really leaves, even though this project has now been put to bed. Mm. And yeah, your mentioning of privilege, it actually, it brings up this, you know, with the, within the larger topic of editing of kind of what gets included. And I wanted to get your reaction to, to the Fireside magazine debacle that happened last week that played out on Twitter. Um, for those who aren't familiar, scholar and author Regina M. Bradley shared the audio recording of a piece she'd written for Fireside magazine that was titled The Art of Speculating, which is a riff on the song titled The Art of Storytelling by hip hop group Outkast. And the, the essay was about um, their music. And the opening line is, I'm a Southern black woman who stands in the long shadow of the civil rights movement. But the person that was hired to read the audio version of the essay was a young white voice actor who affected this minstrel style accent to read it. And um, Regina Bradley rightfully was furious and just kind of responded in disbelief, like, this is what you think I'd sound like, what black women and Southern black folks sound like. Um, there's a lot of layers to unpack, and we're not <laughs> going to impact that whole situation. But I bring it up in the context of our conversation because it does make me think about not only the significance of a book like Black Futures, but the role of editor, the role of publisher, the role of writer, creator, you know, has in relation to those. And just the power of representation and how dangerous or even traumatizing, you know, mishandling or no ignoring that power can be. What was your reaction to kind of what happens with that audio recording, if you, if you had one, and... Again, yeah, kind of then redirecting to what it meant for you to approach Black Futures the way that you did. Mm, I can start. Um, you know, I found that event to be a total tragedy and it did not need to happen. And I've had the privilege of sharing space with Dr. Bradley before. And she's just an incredible intellectual, an incredible thinker and someone whose work is absolutely vital and who did not deserve that whatsoever. And, you know, we were pretty busy with book tour and getting set up. So I didn't follow all the minutia of it, but I do recall seeing something that referenced um, one of the producers didn't listen to the final product. Right. And so it's just clear that there wasn't a lot of thoughtfulness, right? There wasn't a lot of thoughtfulness in how they wanted to handle um, that piece of that, that piece of writing. And, and it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think we all need to slow down a little bit more and we all need to take a little bit more time. And I think we're operating at a space, uh, excuse me, we are operating at a pace and a frequency that feels very much set by the social platforms that we're on rather than maybe our own human instincts. And I think that piece really suffered because of it. And Dr. Bradley deserves more. Yeah. Kimberly Drew, did you have any reactions? Okay, if not, but just... I have to admit, this is my first time hearing about it. Oh, and it wow. makes yeah. me very sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, this commenter, Kalia, writes, With Black Lives Matter, there has been a lot of emphasis on centering Black voices and experiences at the heart of the movement. There has also been a challenge of Black people feeling overburdened with the task of educating non-Black people. As a Black woman, I struggle with writing this fine line of centering my voice without needing to represent all Black people, but also ensuring white folks are authentically doing the real work on their end. It's tricky and a delicate dance. How do you both reconcile this balance in the work you do? I can take this one first. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I mean, this year, <laughs> this year in publishing, uh, because outside of the work that we've been doing for the book, both Jen and I have submitted many, many <laughs> bits of writing um, and I've and been commissioned to do conversations and been um, in the trenches alongside our beautiful comrades who are our editors. I think for myself, I can only say that I try to make sure that I am taking all the agency that I can to define who I want to be the viewers and recipients of my words. And I think also it's important to remember that you can write for yourself. And if it doesn't feel good to write the thing, you do not have to write the thing. It does not make you a failure. And we cannot continue to meter our own successes based on our productivity. Um, and I think that being able to reclaim that is a revolutionary thing and one that I, I hope that all of us, you know, despite working under this capitalist system, are able to tangle with in a way that leaves us the victors. Mm. 
Jenna, how do you reconcile this balance? Um, I thought what Kimberly said was perfect and I feel complete after hearing her. I don't think I have much more to add, but thank you for asking. Okay. There's an entry in Black Futures called The Library of Missing Data Sets. And it's a mixed media art piece by Mimi Onuoha, who writes, quote, there are many reasons why data can be missing, but each missing data set represents a unique lack. And she goes on later to say, data is what people care about enough to measure. We don't collect data on police violence against Native Americans, but what kind of world would it be if we did? Um, The role of data, the role of archiving, can you talk about including that piece and also Black Futures as a form of archive? Mm -hmm. I can start with that. Um, I love Mimi's work, and I was really fortunate to come across it in a broader installation piece on just the impact of tech in our lives. It was held in the Lower East Side, I think, in 2016, and it really blew me away because it was just such a physical manifestation on you know, even though we live in this information overload era, there's certain data that's not collected or shared widely. And, and what we can learn about studying those those um, those losses or those erasures tells a really interesting story about um, the time that we're living in. And I think in a way, Black Futures does that also, right? Like Black Futures is trying to push back against the ways in which social media makes it feel like there's just too much to grasp onto and things are flowing by so quickly. You know, Black Futures is also asking to take a pause and to sit with everything that's going on. And, and even, even doing that, even that being our ambition, we still can barely get our arms around, you know, only 500 pages of, of materials. So I think it's really a meditation on, um, Yes, it's it's really just a meditation on how much abundance there is that's that's happening right now that we can look at. And I think one of the challenges for us, too, is, as co-editors and co-creators is archives are really challenging, right? They're always limited to the purview of the people doing the selecting. And that's very much a challenge we walked towards with open arms and hold very dear. And it's embedded in the intro and it's embedded throughout the book with many calls to readers to think about creating their own archives and thinking about creating their own art collections and also just recognizing that everything we make is precious and worth documenting. So I think we're trying to, you know, challenge the notion of an archive while creating one, but while also acknowledging that they're kind of inherently flawed. So it's, it's working on multiple levels there. Right. And let's go to caller Elizabeth and San Mateo. Elizabeth, you're on. Um, Hi, thank you. So I'm an old white lady who actually worked in New York for 10 years, and I want to say thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm out here now, and I, I enjoy it, but I, I miss the vibrancy of New York City. And also, you know, the last four years has been pretty traumatic for me, although I think a silver lining is that it's shown the craziness and the, the manipulativeness and the um, suppression that, you know, I don't know, but it seems that black folks have had to just face for centuries and that it makes folks like me have to kind of reckon with and step up. So I've been doing a lot more politically in the last uh, few years than I did before, you know, under Obama thinking, oh, things are doing pretty well. So thank you. And I'm going to get the book for everyone in my family, particularly the Fox Watchers. (laughs) Oh, thank you. We really appreciate that. Thank you for calling in. Yes. Thanks for sharing that comment, Elizabeth. And another piece that stood out to me that I want to mention is titled Black Power Naps by Navida Costa and Fanny Sosa. It's an art installation and described as a zone of pleasurable refusal, a refuge from noiseocracy, a shelter from the necropolitics of the city. Um, I don't know, Jenna or Kimberly, if either of you kind of chose that piece in particular or wanted to speak to it. This is Jenna. I'm happy yeah. to jump in. Um, I, I did select that piece. I remember when that installation came to New York and, you know, watching my feed fill up with young Black queer folks who were going to just rest mm. and reading how empowered they felt and how much they needed that space, especially New York is a city that never sleeps. I mean, that is true, although I guess not right now. But, you know, generally it's a city that really prioritizes productivity over all else and really pushes you beyond your limits. And I think it was just so – it was really magnificent to watch people, you know – 
go into this space just to slow down and just to relax. And I'm someone who thinks about wellness all the time, as is Kimberly, which is why it keeps coming up. And that was just important for me to highlight. And this idea that, you know, some of our practices and some of our artistic outputs can actually be oriented around that uh, felt really crucial to highlight in the book. Right. And even just, I mean, I feel like, I mean, the pandemic pandemic's been exposing a lot of the cracks even in further, but I feel like our, the culture of productivity in the country has just been challenged, um, right? And and the emotional burden that a lot and just weight of this year in particular, where there has been an inclination to rest or a hope that, you know, we can find rest and kind of making space for that to be okay. And so I know that one just really stood out. And I'm also, I just love naps. And so it was it was a nice affirmation on, on yes. that front. <laughs> Um, so if you're just joining <laughs> us, um, we're talking about the book Black Futures with co-editors Kimberly Drew. She's a curator and activist who's also author of This Is What I Know About Art and Jenna Wortham, staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and co-host of the Still Processing podcast. And we welcome you, our listeners, to join the conversation as well. What questions do you have for them? What does it mean to you to be black and alive right now? What black artists or writers or activists have had an impact on you whose work you would include in an anthology celebrating black lives? Life and perspectives. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And another piece that really stood out that I, we just have a moment to um, actually before we get into it, let me let us know a little bit about the the sections that you created for this kind of joy legacy and why that was important. Just about 30 seconds. Kimberly. Yeah, absolutely. I can take that on. We are so very fortunate to have had Chris Jackson as our leader, as our champion and as our captain as we embarked on this book journey. And when we went in to meet with Chris, uh, we were like, maybe we'll start the 1980s. And Chris was like, okay, let's whittle this down. And maybe we can look at some themes that will help you to navigate your way through this ambitious project. And so big shouts to Chris Jackson and the entire One World team for helping us break this down into thematic categories. Great. And we'll hear more about some of those categories and what else is included in Black Futures after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. We're talking about what it means to be alive, black and alive right now in the book Black Futures with co-editors Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. And another piece, I know I'm just kind of picking, there's just, there were so many things to dive into. And so I'm, I'm just really reveling and getting to, to chat with you all about it. So far, one of my favorite parts is Doreen St. Felix's essay about a personal hero of mine. It's titled June Jordan's Vision of a Black Future. Kimberly Drew, can you talk about that one? With pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) We love Doreen St. Felix in this house. Doreen is a tremendous mind. Um, And we were so happy to be able to feature her tributary essay to June Jordan, a poet, you know, and thinker who I think we all should be looking to for guidance in this moment and moments beyond this one. It is one of our favorite pieces as well because it really challenges the concept of linear time in the book. It is both uh, a piece about June Jordan and a person that we, of course, want to bring with us into the future, but also June Jordan's conceptualization of the future for Harlem Mm -hmm. and what it means to respond to that right now. And through Jenna's incredible editorial lens, um, she paired this essay along with these beautiful drawings by Renee Gladman, an artist and poet and thinker that we also love very, very, very much. Um, And it 
created this really beautiful, um, I think, mosaic uh, thinking about futurity, thinking about architectures and thinking about what it means to um, hold more than maybe people perceive of us or a landscape. Right. And and kind of the core premise there was it was in 1965 for an Esquire piece and June Jordan had titled it Sky Rise for Harlem. And there was just this whole kind of architecture that she created around kind of this future vision for, for Harlem. And Esquire ended up publishing it as instant slum clearance. Um, and the line that really stuck with me um, from the essay was, what if it had been June Jordan who was New York City's master builder rather than Robert Moses if Sky Rise for Harlem had materialized? And I think that question stands out for me because I feel like you can ask that of so many different people, different thinkers and artists and and black folk who in, you know, times of extreme kind of segregation maybe weren't getting the opportunity to, you know, express or be in the room or be at the table, right, to to share their creativity, their ideas. Yes, and I'm so glad that you brought up that piece because it's one of our favorites. And that last line is just so incredible and it really embodies – you know, one of the central organizing principles of the book, you know, when thinking about Black futures, it's not just thinking about the worlds we're walking towards today, but the worlds that, you know, our past heroes and architects were trying to walk towards, but got thwarted. And so it is this very nonlinear question of asking around um, what could have been and how do we get let that galvanize us to think about what we're trying to do today. Right. And then there's a section you have called the legacy section. And one of the one of the pieces in there is a conversation between Rembert Brown and filmmaker Ezra Edelman about Colin Kaepernick. Um, but before that one, I also just, in general, the com- in-conversation pieces that you commissioned for this project, I'm curious what that process looked like. Was it like a dream list of who you'd love to hear, you know, sit down and talk to whom? How did those come about? Kimberly Drew. Yes, yes, sorry. No <laughs> Zoom troubles. Um it came about in a number of different ways. Um, I think Ezra and Rembert's conversation, of course, sticks out because we were thinking so much about how to talk about Colin Kaepernick in the book. He became this kind of like secret um, figure that we were trying to make sense of because as we were building this book from 20, 2015 to you know the very last moments, there were so many shifts that happened from his public persona to the work with the Know Your Rights Camp, shout out to them and their incredible work. Um, but our conversations came together somewhat organically because we had themes that we wanted to tackle and we had folks that we wanted to include and we were seeing some connective tissues but noticing that those conversations weren't quite happening yet and so we said you and you get on get on a call and you and you you know sit in this you know hang out and and then we you know went to them and allowed folks to edit their own conversations some of the conversations Mm -hmm. we edited and gave feedback but it was a really beautiful and iterative process in the end and there's also a piece in the legacy um, section on Black Planet, uh, which was a nice throwback. That was part of my college days, for sure. Um, Jenna, can you comment on that piece? I mean, it's, it really is talking about how it was ahead of its time, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yes. Um, so we commissioned that piece from Andre Brock, who's an incredible thinker and academic and historian, really. And it just felt really incredible, again, to think about some of the some of the pieces of software and the communities and the tools that we had uh, before social media exists as it does today. And it was especially resonant because Solange had recently revived Black Planet to do an album launch. And we were really impressed and moved by that, as I think many people were. And it, it, it allowed so many of us to dive back into that nostalgia and remember those days of, yes, sharing party invites on Black Planet. It was a huge staple of my college years as well. And really influential and instrumental and and also really important, you know, to think about the early ways in which we were using the internet to connect to each other, despite our geographical limitations in specifically black design and black created spaces, you know, and that piece asks a really incredible question, right? You know, it acknowledges that so many of the spaces that we congregate in now don't prioritize or privilege black life, right? And what would mm-hmm. it mean to create something that does? And so again, it's a really incredible prompt, just like Doreen's essay is about what was and what could be. 
So just kind of looking back through this whole process and, and project, what's something you've been taking away from the process of making this book? Kimberly Drew? I think, yeah, absolutely. I think for myself, I, at every stage of this book, really, have just realized what community and family and partnership mean in a completely different way. The book resulted in just under 200 contributors, but there are hundreds more people whose influence and voice and nurturing have helped us usher this book into its existence. And I think this week I'm sitting in deep gratitude with everyone who picked up the phone, everyone who sat with us at a lunch table and our families who have supported us through this entire journey. Shout out to each and every one of them, nuclear and chosen. Um, But I think I'm really sitting with the fact that this book and many books represent a universe that doesn't always get translated into every single page, but is very, very much present in the social history of any project. Jenna, what are you taking away? I am really, really resonating with the things in the book that I even forgot were in there that contributors and readers are screenshotting and sharing. I mean, it's been incredible to rediscover the book through other people. And it's really a testament to how much work Kimberly and I put in and how many pieces of, of material we collected and archived in the book that we forgot some of them. And that's been really joyful. And that's been something that I've been sitting with. And, you know, most people that encounter it are having totally different experiences than Kimberly and I even set out, you know, to architect when we began creating the book. And I think it's just so wonderful to see something take on a life of its own like that. Yeah. Well, this listener writes, the issue of cultural appropriation has come up so often this year and media companies keep getting it wrong. For example, I'm thinking of Bon Appetit magazine and how in the latest issue they misattributed a soup that is intrinsic to Haitian culture. We obviously need more diversity among the gatekeepers of quote unquote culture, and it can't happen soon enough. Do either of you have any reactions to that comment? You know, this was another one of the media snafus that I barely caught wind of because Mm -hmm. we were so busy getting ready for the book. I did hear some mentions of it on Twitter. But again, it's like, you know, I think it really speaks to the need for people of all backgrounds to be in these rooms and, and not, I mean, Kimberly is so much more brilliant than I am on these ideas of diversity inclusion. And that's not exactly what I'm talking about, because this is something Kimberly says very often, but inclusion often refers to a quota or a percentage or a portion of of black people or non-white people in a room and that in itself is incredibly embarrassing and limiting but again I think it's just there really needs to be a reorientation and rethinking of so many of the infrastructures that we take for granted and that is just another example of what happens when you don't have enough people Um, or maybe it's an example of what happens when you try to cover um, a culture or a geographical territory or, you know, ideas that you're not familiar with and you don't have people in the room who are familiar with them to take it on. And we have another commenter. Lauren asks, first, I'd like to say I have been a big fan of Jenna Wortham for some time now, and I'm excited to discover more about Kimberly Drew and her work. As a white woman, I wonder how the authors would advise their non-white readers to engage with their work, and what does it mean to purchase this book for ourselves and our community? I know we touched on that a little bit at the top, but maybe just in reference directly to, to Lauren's question. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a doozy of a question. I mean, I think there's, you know, the devil on my shoulder is like, engage with it as you would any other book, um, you know, buy it for a community as you would with any other book or, you know, engage with it in the way that you might engage with black music, which many people do very comfortably. I know many of us are Beyonce fans. Um, but then I also say in a more angelic note, thank you for taking the time to consider this text. I mean, it is it is such a gift that people of many walks of life and of many points of origin are learning about this text and taking it seriously and making this consideration of whether they want to engage or not. Um, I think I can't answer why anyone should get it, but I can say that I hope if you do, that it resonates for you in some way, that there can be some opportunity for engagement and learning and expansion in the way that both Jenna and I, as Black writers and editors, encountered all the content in the book, because there were definitely many, many moments of surprise for for each of us. And so I think 
you know, I hope to invite everyone on this journey of learning, on this journey of recording and of this journey of witnessing. And Kay tweets, now let's hope KQED includes black people in everyday conversations about how policy, procedures and politics affect them, affect them, where are black voices in segments about climate change, the Bay Area housing market or the restaurant industry. Blackness isn't segregated. Uh, That's I mean, that's something that I think you're also a theme of kind of blackness isn't segregated while your book is specifically black futures and highlighting um, black life and experiences it's really showing just how fully integrated black folk and our ideas and our work is just everywhere. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I was just going to say, I think that this text, uh, this is Kimberly speaking that this text, though it is a, a collective gesture, it is not a gesture of hoarding. You know, we're not trying to silo it away or pull it away in any way. We really want it to be this generative act of sharing and encouraging and inviting, enticing, um, inciting curiosity in so many. And I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's so much bigger than thinking about, you know, separation. It's really about thinking about integration and thinking about really sitting with the incredible contributions that Black folks have made and will make every day. And Jenna, did you want to jump in as well? Just to underscore everything that Kimberly said. And I also think too, I mean, just thinking about that, that listener question from a few moments ago. And, you know, I think this book speaks to a broader experience. And there's so much about the Black experience in this country and around the world that is always addressed or responded to in moments of crisis. And I, I would really encourage anyone who's curious about you know, Black people and the Black experience outside of moments of crisis to engage with this book and not just, you know, view when there's an uprising or an unjust killing or, you know, write something equally problematic happening to then pay attention to thinking about Black life and and Black issues, you know, but to also take it on beyond that. And then the other option too is, you know, if there's someone in your life that you think might enjoy this book, you could always gift it to them. and, And it's just a gift that keeps on giving. So... We're talking with Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham, co-editors of Black Futures. I'm Ariana Prail. This is Forum. So I'm curious just briefly, what's in your futures? I know it's hard to plan things these days, but are there any other projects that you're working on right now that you're you're excited about, Kimberly? My greatest project right now is thinking about rest. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think we're, we're definitely just about in the halfway point of our virtual book tour, which we invite everyone to participate in. And I think I'm dreaming of what, you know, a personal close to 2020 might look like. I think this year has asked so much of us. Um, I carefully choose ask over demand. Um, and I think for myself, I'm really looking forward to having some meditative moments to really sit with all that this year has given and taken away. Right. Jenna? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also focusing on rest and reflection. I think there's just so much that's happened this year that I would really love to spend some time processing and integrating. Uh, in terms of material projects, there are many. Um, we'll continue to be on book tour throughout 2021. So um, you can follow us on, on our Instagrams. Um, Kimberly is at Museum Mammy and I'm at Jane Deluxe for more information about where we'll be. And we both have exciting new projects coming out. And so stay tuned for all of those as well. Great. So, well, every Friday we've, um, for the past few months on Forum, we've been playing a listener-recommended song as part of a mini-segment called The Music Getting You Through 2020. And fittingly, we had a listener recommend the song Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness, which is mentioned in an essay by Jasmine Johnson for your book, The Optimistic Challenge, Decisive Black Joy. Not divisive, decisive black joy. Um, Before we hear the song, though, I just wanted to ask briefly for each of you to share kind of what you're optimistic about right now in terms of Black futures. Jenna? Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. What a yeah. cool challenge. And I love that synchronicity. Um, what am I optimistic about? I guess, I guess that, you know, we never stop. We never stop creating. And I mean, I think even that challenge 
which is so beautifully outlined and, 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 and analyzed and dissected by Jasmine Johnson, is really a testament to you know, the ways in which we manage to stay connected and inspire each other and just, you know, give each other joy without necessarily being tethered to capitalistic gain or material needs, but just for the fun of it. And so I think that's something that's making me feel playful and hopeful is just that there's still a lot of fun to be had, even admit amid all the muck of this year and, you know, next year, because it's going to continue. But I do feel, I do feel buoyed by, the ways in which and the avenues that are available to us to make work and share it and have fun. And Kimberly, maybe just about 10 seconds so we can squeeze in the song. What are you optimistic about? Ah, 10 seconds. I am optimistic about every morning and every opportunity to wake up. It sounds so silly, but I feel like every day is an opportunity and I'm holding on to that hope with both hands and both feet. And on that note, Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham, co-editors of the new book, Black Futures, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So now let's This was head- such a pleasure. Oh, yay. <laughs> for me too. So now let's head into the weekend with another installment from our series, The Music Getting You Through 2020. Listener Kelly writes, Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness is both funky and inspirational. It fills your spirit with joy and makes you want to get up and dance. It makes you feel like you can overcome any obstacle. Keep it, keep on. That's Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness. Thanks to listener Kelly for sharing it with us. And if you want to hear all the songs listeners are recommending, check out and follow KQED's The Music Getting You Through 2020 playlist on Spotify. I'm Ariana Prail. Mina Kim will be back on Monday. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.